I know that some of you, are, most of you are expecting me to have you turn to Galatians. Um, <clears throat> but I want to just um, spend a little more time speaking about the assurance that we have, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, giving us assurance of our sonship and of our salvation. And so I want to take this verse in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, in verse 10, and we'll use this verse kind of as a springboard to go further in this topic. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Make your calling and election sure. I want you to know that God desires every one of us to be confident of our sonship, to be confident and assured of our salvation. And this is one of the ministries, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. If you look at 1 John chapter 5, it's just a few pages over. 1 John chapter 5. John writes here, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. That ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know. I want you to ask yourself that question today. Do you know? Do you know for certain, beyond the shadow of doubt, do you know for certain that you have eternal life? John was concerned about it. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. You need to know. Now, last week we were in the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 4. I'm going to turn back there. Galatians chapter 4. There in verse 4. Paul writes, he says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Last week we were talking about the Holy Spirit. When we think about the Holy Spirit, there are several passages of Scripture that we ought to turn to or we ought to know where they are. And three of them are in John. Well, there's three chapters in John. John chapter 14, John 15, and John 16 that talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to turn back there briefly here. John chapter 14, Jesus gives some teaching to his disciples concerning the Comforter, the one who is going to come in his name. The promise of the Holy Spirit was given. It was given back in the Old Testament, and the prophet, prophet Joel speaks of it. But, Joel, but Jesus here, in John chapter 14, 
in verse 16 says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The sending of the Holy Spirit is promised, verse 16 there, and also in verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, there he names him for us. There is no doubt who he's speaking of when he speaks of the Comforter. The Comforter who is the Holy Ghost. By the way, let me just stop here. You'll see um, in the New Testament or in Scripture, you'll read the term the Holy Spirit. You'll also read the term the Holy Ghost. Let me just set your mind at ease. The word spirit and the word ghost are the exact same Greek word. Please don't think it's referring to something different or there's some subtle nuance implied with ghost as opposed to spirit. It could be translated either way. And I, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, it, it would seem to be better if it was just always the Holy Spirit. The reason being is... In our day, when you think of ghost, what do you think of? You know, when you think of ghost, so many of you people were raised on cartoons, um, okay? <laughs> but, you know, we think of something cartoonish or something fake, something, you know, a joke. And I think that's, I, I think that's sad because as we read the scripture, we're reading in this old English term, ghost, it actually is the same Greek word as spirit. And so the Holy Spirit and when I think of the Holy Spirit, I, there, there's a little more reverence with that term. Just I'm, Again, I'm just talking about culturally and in the day and age in which we live. That term ghost causes you know, a lot of people thinking, have you seen Casper or these other things? And they think of it more as something that's, you know, maybe not real. But let me just rest assured, again, that Greek word is the same word, the Holy Spirit. And so here in verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, in John chapter um, 15, the very next chapter in verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And then in John 16 and verse 17, he says, Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so the promise of the Comforter is mentioned over and over in these three passages. I find interesting that Jesus says there, I tell you the truth, it is expedient or it is advantageous for you. I'm sure that they really did not understand what Jesus meant by that. But do you realize that when Jesus was on the earth, in Philippians, it talks about him humbling himself. He came, he limited himself. Jesus on the earth was not everywhere present. He did not manifest all of his divine attributes. We know that God is omnipresent, always present, everywhere present. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And when we see Jesus here in his ministry through the Gospels, we know that he knew the thoughts of people. He would answer their thoughts before they even asked a question. 
But there were some things that where Jesus did not express all of his ability. He was, it was his time of humiliation. He came not as a superhuman, but he came as a man. He came as a servant to serve. And Jesus was not everywhere present. There were times when Jesus was not with his disciples. You think about the time when they rode across the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was up on a mountain praying clear into the night. And his disciples are out there and a storm came up and they were just fit to be tied. They thought they were going to die. And then Jesus walks out on the water to join himself to them and they see him walking in the water and they think they're seeing a ghost. They are scared out of their minds. Now, why do I mention that? Because Jesus says here, it is expedient, it is actually advantageous that I go away because I am going to send the Comforter who will be with you always. He is going to dwell in you. The indwelling Holy Spirit, the presence of God within the temple of their bodies, dwelling with them. Listen, folks, that's better than Jesus being 200 miles away. I mean, I, I say that somewhat, it sounds funny, but exact, this is what Jesus is saying. This is expedient. It is advantageous that I go away because I am going to send you the comforter. And folks, we have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a child of God, you have the indwelling presence of God within you. What a blessing that is. You know, we, we tend to think, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if, if Jesus were alive today on the earth? Well, he is alive. But if he was walking around just like he did in the disciples' day, wouldn't it be neat to be able to follow him around? Folks, we have something even better. We have the indwelling presence of God. We have the comforter, the Holy Spirit dwelling. It is expedient that I go away, Jesus said. I want to just, again, remind you of some of the activities of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 and verse 16, where Jesus said that he is going to abide with you forever. He's not going to leave you. He's going to abide with you forever. In John chapter 14, verse 17, he says, for in the last part of the verse, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. That's personal. Okay? Yes, he's, he's with us, but he's not just with us. He is in us. In us. And, you know, you think about it. What a blessing it is to have the presence of God dwelling within. You know, God is not a phone call away. Okay? We don't need to, who's going to bring him down from heaven? Who's going to bring him up from the below? No, he, he's dwelling within us. In John chapter 14, verse 17, He's speaking about the whole, Jesus is speaking about the Spirit. He says, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. The Holy Spirit is only manifest to believers. The world does not know him. They've never seen him. They don't understand him. They cannot receive him. That seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. In verses 22 and 23, again, I mentioned this, Judas said unto him, not, not Judas Iscariot, he says, Lord, how is it thou shalt mani or manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And how, is he, how does Jesus manifest himself to us, yet not to the world? Well, 
Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So here he is manifest only to believers. In John chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Of whom does the Holy Spirit testify? The Son. He testifies of Christ. And then in John 16, verses 8 through 11, he will reprove or convince, convict there the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, verse 13, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. The Spirit guides us in truth. He guides us. In verse 13, he says, He shall not speak of himself, but verse 14 says, He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, to magnify the Son of God. And he will reveal that which he receives from the Father. And as you go through the Scripture and you look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what does he do? Well, of course, we just looked at it. He indwells the believer. We see this very um, clearly in the book of Acts as those who came to Christ were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were indwelt with the Spirit of God. He brings us comfort. He's called the Comforter there in um, John 16. It says in verses 8 and through 11, He will do what? He convicts. He brings about conviction, conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, conviction of judgment to come. In Romans chapter 8, he gives assurance of sonship. He is our guide. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, he gives us instruction. He reveals to us the things of the Spirit of God, which, are, which can only be spiritually known. The world does not understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot understand the things of God. They're just going to be empty words. Galatians 5, he produces fruit in the life of the believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he equips believers for service with spiritual gifts. He is our connection with the Father. Galatians 4, 6, Romans 8, 15, we cry, Abba, Father. Again, this has to do with our assurance. He intercedes for us in Romans 8, 26. He's the earnest of our inheritance. He is the proof, the down payment of what God is going to finally fulfill when we are with Him. Now, these are just some of his, the, the ministries of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to look at today is, in particular, His ministry of assurance. Assurance. How do we know that we are the children of God? How do we know that we have eternal life. You ever felt like you weren't really sanctified? You ever wondered if you ever had doubts about your salvation? 
you know, if we were honest, probably every one of us would have to raise your hand and say, you know, I, yeah, there's been times that I've had doubts as to whether I was really saved. Well, one of the clearest evidences of salvation is really the Word of God. There's the scriptural assurance of our salvation. All that, in fact, all that we know, everything we know about the assurance of our salvation comes from what? It comes from the written Word of God. Outside of that, what would we know? And so we have specific statements, and we have guarantees from God's Word. God's word. However, those promises are only as good as the one who's making the promise. Think about that. Our faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. Have you ever trusted someone and they let you down? Well, sure. It's kind of human nature. A man will let you down. Our faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. So is faith in God well-placed or is it misplaced? What has God told us in His Word about assurance of salvation? Well, before we examine His promises, we better know something of the character of God. I mean, He's the one making the promises. How trustworthy is God? Well, Numbers 23 and verse 19 is a good verse. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Now, let's just stop right there. That is quite a statement, isn't it? You ever just pause and just think about the statements of Scripture? Don't just keep reading. Stop and think about what he just said. There's God, and there's man. He's talking about two beings here. God is a spirit. We know that. But God is not what? He's not a man. What would be the result of being a man? Well, they should lie. What are men? Liars. <laughs> Don't miss that, okay? Like I said, it's simple, and it's easy to just read straight through that, but don't miss what's being said. Men are liars, and God is not like that. God is not a man that he should lie. Okay? The Bible tells us in many places it's better put to trust in the Lord than to trust in what? Men. Have you ever been disappointed trusting in a man or a woman? Okay? Certainly. Absolutely. So, but God is not like that. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the Son of Man that he should repent. Now, talking about the Son of Man, that's a title that is used of, of Jesus in the New Testament. This is not referring to his title as the Son of Man, but he's saying he's, he's not a man, nor is he a Son of Man that he should what? Repent. Now, I know when you think of the word repent, you think, oh, that means to turn from sin. Okay, well, God doesn't sin, so he has nothing to turn from. That's not what that word is saying. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should what? Change his mind. You know, I thought about that, and eh, I decided I'm not going to do it. No. Okay. 
We talked about integrity this morning in the Bible study hour. Let your yea be yea and your nay nay. Wouldn't you say, let it be the truth? So God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should just be changing his mind. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Listen, when God says something, it is. When God promises something, it will be. Okay? The Bible says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God does not repent. He's not the son of man that he should repent. Change his mind. Now, let's go on. What else does Scripture tell us about God? In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. Titus 1 and verse 2. Paul is introducing, this is his introduction, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So what has God promised? And what has he made provision for? For eternal life. He has promised this. When did he promise this? When did the plan of salvation, when was it formed? Prior to creation, before the world began. Salvation is not an afterthought. God didn't say, oh yeah, man blew it, I better think of something to fix this problem. What will it be? Oh, I have an idea. Okay, no, the whole thing was planned. It is going right along according to God's script. God promised eternal life, and it was promised... When? It was planned out before the world began. And so the hope that we have is based on what? It's based on God's planning. It's based on God's promise. In Hebrews chapter 6, just a couple pages further, we've memorized this. Hebrews chapter 6. Go to verses 18 and 19. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Sure means guaranteed. Steadfast means unchangeable. Both sure and steadfast which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus. Okay? What has God done? Well, he has given us a confirmation. We have this hope of eternal life. It is an anchor of the soul. And by the way, the word hope means a steadfast expectation, a confident expectation. When the word hope is used here in the New Testament, it's not wishful thinking. Sometimes we say, man, I, I hope it'll be nice tomorrow. I hope it won't rain. Or I, no idea, but I hope. No, this is not the hope of which Scripture speaks. It is a confident expectation. We have the hope of, of salvation, which is what? The Scripture describes our hope of salvation and our assurance as a soul anchor. Listen, if, if our salvation... And the hope of salvation which we have is an anchor of the soul. What kind of anchor would that be if salvation was something you could lose? 
we have an anchor. But it's kind of a slippery anchor. Sometimes it grabs hold and holds us fast and we have confidence. And other days, you know, it slips off and we drift a while, but then it grabs again. Let me tell you something. Uh, no, ship, no ship captain wants an anchor that doesn't grip the rock and hold his boat through the storm. Okay. Our hope that we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. Now, what is the script? Now, so th- listen, this is God's character. God gives us promises in his word about our assurance of salvation. Those promises are only as good as the character of the one who is promising, but God's character is unassailable. God is holy. He cannot lie, and he has promised this. Now, what does the scripture say concerning assurance? Well, of course, there are many passages. Let's just go and look at a few. What does John 3.16 say? Probably every one of you have learned this verse. It's one of the most familiar verses of scripture. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So who has everlasting life? Who will not perish? Whosoever will. Whosoever believes in Him. Those people cannot perish. They have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, look at this passage. He says, he's speaking of the gospel, the word which they preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There it is. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, he is the Son of God. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart, what? That he is alive, that God has raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Go on to verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, shall not be embarrassed, okay? shall not be, in modern vernacular, left hanging. Okay? No. Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. It goes on. He shall not be put to shame, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. Let's go to the book of John again. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 37.
Jesus says this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no ways or in no way cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus is there speaking of himself. He is the good shepherd. He's just said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give unto them eternal life. Eternal life. And they shall what? Never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. By the way, I and my Father are one, he says. Now, what has he just said? My sheep, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and what does he give them? He says, I give unto them eternal life. Do you know anything about the word eternal? What does eternal mean? It means without end. Without end. Eternal life. And they shall never, ever, never perish. That means it is impossible for them to perish. For those whom God gives eternal life, it is impossible that they should perish. In other words, they cannot lose that assurance. They cannot lose that salvation. It is eternal. Whenever I think of eternal life, I remember that when I was 16 years old, our family took a trip back east and we went through Washington, D.C. and looked at all the monuments and all these other things and it was... We'd never been there before. And we actually went out to um, that big graveyard out there. The name escapes me. There's a lot of soldiers out there, a lot of important people. Arlington, there we go. And um, JFK, he has his grave out there. And there's a little burner right in the middle. And this flame that burns. And it's called the eternal flame. But the sad thing about that eternal flame is it's actually been blown out a few times. So it is really misappropriately named the eternal flame. It's got some kind of gas supply, but there have been a few storms. There's been a couple times where it's actually blown out. And they've had to relight. So my friends, that is no eternal flame. <laughs> but whenever I think of eternal life, for some reason, I think of that flame because it was called the eternal flame. It's what it's labeled, the eternal flame. It's not eternal because it blows out. But... Not so, not so eternal life. Eternal life has no end. Otherwise, it would not be eternal. How many of you figured out first time around? Okay, we're good. Okay, so if it could end, it would not be eternal. By definition. But what else did Jesus say? He says here, I give unto the eternal life, and they shall never perish. He goes on and he says, and neither 
shall any man pluck them out of my hand? Now, is, is, is this like, you know, this is, it's not that it's redundant, but he is stating it over and over in different ways so that you can't miss it. I give unto them eternal life. There it is. I, I'm secure. Number two, I shall never perish. Well, that goes without saying. If you're eternally secure, you cannot perish. And number three, what does he say? And neither shall any man get them out of my grasp. You, no man can pluck them out of my hand. No one, no man can pluck the saint or the child of God out of his hand. And then he goes one step further. My father, who is the greatest, okay? My father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. I think one of the most foolish comments I've ever heard was this. All right, well, the scripture says that no man can pluck them out of the father's hand, but we could pluck ourselves out of God's hand and lose our salvation. I think that it really demonstrates an ignorance of what Scripture just said. Who are you? Are you more than a man? Are you greater than the Father who is greater than all, whom no man can pluck out of his hand, and somehow you can? I think that's a gross misunderstanding of what the verse is clearly saying, and it says it. Listen, I give them eternal life. One, they'll never perish. Number two, you no one is going to pluck them out of my hand. Number three. And number four, my father, which is greater than all, no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. Do you get it? I'm convinced. Okay. I, I, I think that it's given there so you can't miss it. You cannot miss it. Well, 1 John, now we looked at this, this verse, verse 13, just a little bit ago, but let's go back to 1 John chapter 5 and let's look at verses 11 through 15. 1 John 5, 11 through 15. And this is the record. Here it is. Here's the testimony. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Where does eternal life reside? In the Son. Think about that. He that hath the Son has what? That same eternal life which resides in the Son. So he who has the Son has life. And he that hath not the Son of God has not life. Does not have eternal life. Now, whose life is it? It's the life of Christ. I have the life of Christ. That must be eternal. When you start talking about, well, eternal life doesn't really mean eternal life, now you're, now you're messing with what the Scripture says about the Son. Okay? This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son has eternal life. If you are a child of God, He has come to make His abode within you. And you have His life living within you. It is eternal. 
Now, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. You do not have eternal life. Let's go back to John chapter 6. I want us to note what Jesus says in this passage. John chapter 6. The Scripture says, Whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so who will come? Who is it that will come? We have the scriptural assurance of our salvation, what the Scripture says. But what about evidences from experience? Now, have you ever had a powerful personal persuasion of the truth? Of the truth. When the Scripture is read, when we've been reading these verses, even here, is there something within you that cries out, yes, yes, that's me. I have that. I believe. I believe. I have called upon the name of the Son of God. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's me. Do you have that powerful personal persuasion of the assurance of your salvation? Because let me tell you something. That kind of conviction only comes from one source. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. And this is His ministry. John 16, verse 8, He will convict, convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He is the convincer. You know, there are many people who go to church on Sunday, and they sit there, and they hear the Word of God. They hear every word, just like everyone else sitting around them, and they leave completely unchanged. They heard the words that went in one ear and out the other, and it really did nothing for them. And why is that? Because there is, no, there is not the witness of the Holy Spirit within, crying out, Abba, Father. There's no connection there. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking in this chapter, and I want us to look at verse 66. John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples turned back or went back and walked no more with him. That's an interesting statement. There were many who were following Jesus up to this point. And at this point, they turned back, left, and followed him no more. Now, like I said, there were some who heard Jesus' teaching, just like there are some who sit in church and listen, and they go away completely unchanged. There were many who heard what Jesus had to say, and yet they went away and followed him no more. What happened in John chapter 6? Remember John chapter 6, great miracle, Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just a little sack lunch? Okay. There was just a lad there with five barley loaves and two small fishes. But the people sat down and Jesus fed them. And it says there 
Um, now the word that's, that were in that place, the men sat down and number about 5,000. That's just men. It's not about any women or children, but just the men. Jesus took the loaves, he'd given thanks, he distributed the disciples, the disciples gave to them that were sat down, and likewise of the fishes, so much as they could eat. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that, that remain, that nothing be lost. And they gathered 12 baskets of the fragments. And verse 14 says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They looked at Jesus, and what did they recognize him as? Ah, this is the prophet that was supposed to come. This is the prophet. He's a prophet. Who is he? Ah, much more than a prophet. When Jesus asked Peter later on, he says, Who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're a great teacher. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? You are the Son of God. What did Jesus say? Peter, you are blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven, has revealed this to you. Here were these people that had observed the miracle. Their bellies were filled. And they looked at Jesus and they said, this must be the prophet. This is that prophet that should come into the world. And of course, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departs again into the mountain himself alone. Now, the next day, in verse 22, the day following, on, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Well, it says, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also took up shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Where did he go? And they found him on the other side. And they said, well, how did you get here? And Jesus answered and said to them in verse 26, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Jesus said, you're not seeking me even because you saw the miracles. You're looking for a free lunch. Obviously, they weren't seeking him because they recognized he was the son of God. They weren't even seeking him because they saw the miracles. Hey, they're hungry. Let's go find that guy that fed us again. Maybe he'll do it again. Get a free lunch. What kind of motive was that? And then Jesus goes on and he begins to speak to them about the true bread from heaven. And that is that he is the true bread which came down from heaven. I want you to note... In verse 33, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. They said, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Sounds just like the Samaritan woman. I want that water. In verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But note what he says in verse 36. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You've seen me and you do not believe who I am. Why didn't they believe? They had seen. They'd partaken of the, the free lunch. 
They'd seen what Jesus did, fed 5,000 people with just a, a small snack. Well, he answers that in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, remember what the scripture says about our salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord saves. He does not reject anyone who calls upon him for salvation. Just as we see in the, in the Gospels, when Jesus went from town to town, all who came to him that were sick and had physical needs, every single one was healed. Everyone that came to him. The only ones who weren't healed were the ones who didn't come. And here he says in verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So who comes? Who comes to Christ? Those whom the Father, those whom the Father gives him. Now that's not everyone. Only those whom the Father draws, only whom the Father gives, come to him. Let's go on. Go down to verse 44. They were murmuring that Jesus said he was the bread which came down from heaven. They said, we can't accept that. You, you, you're talking about coming down from heaven? No. In fact, we know who you are. Look what they said. They just said here, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Now, there's a misunderstanding of who, where Jesus came from. Hey, we know his parents, Joseph and Mary. They also are the ones who accused him of being born of fornication later on. Well, Jesus says, don't murmur among yourselves. Don't murmur among yourselves. Verse 44, look at verses 44 and 45. No man can come to me. No man can even come. Except one type of a person can come. He says here, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. No man can come. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Notice verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. Now, here were these people. There were some who had heard the word of God. They'd heard his teaching. They'd eaten of the bread. They'd seen the miracles. And yet, at the end of his speech here, they walk away. Not to follow him. Why not? Because they were not drawn of the Father. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus says this over and over. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the, no man comes unto the Father but by me. But he also says here, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. How does a person get saved? 
Well, God draws him. He draws him. Draws him to himself. If you come to the Lord, if you come to salvation, how did you get to that point? There's only one explanation. Is because you have been drawn by the Father. Now, you go and hear back to the, towards the end of this chapter, John chapter 6. Go to verse, 30, verse 64 and 65. It says, Jesus said, But there are some of you that believe not. And then John interrupts. In his writing, he interrupts what Jesus says and says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. Jesus knew this from the beginning. Now, let's take out what John said there, and let's connect the two, the two parts that Jesus said. Verse 64, But there are some of you that believe not, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. There were some who believed not. Why didn't they believe? Because the Father had not drawn them. That's why he says, that's why I said unto you that no man can come unto me. It is not even possible for a man to come to salvation except it were given unto him of my Father. In verse 66, what was the result of his message? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Clear evidence that they were not what? They were not drawn of the Father. They couldn't believe. There's only one way a man can believe in Jesus Christ, and that is that the Father draws him. He draws him. Have you ever had a powerful personal persuasion of the truth of salvation, the truth of Scripture? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is speaking of the believers and their testimony there at Thessalonica. And he says this, we give, beginning at verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only. Stop right there. Our gospel came not unto you in word only. It was just not the words. But what else was there? But in power, also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance... Power in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Listen, it's not, it wasn't just words. It had power. Who was drawing them? The Father was drawing them. 
It's not just words. In much assurance or full conviction, they were fully convinced of the gospel. And that wasn't because of Paul's words. It was because the Father was drawing them and they were convinced of the truth. They were convicted of the truth. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, he gives us full assurance of our salvation. That's why people can sit in a service and go to church Sunday after Sunday and hear the word of God and walk out the back door completely unchanged. Because God is not drawing them. You know, when you come to the law, what's what's the result? When you come to the law, you're imprisoned. You're imprisoned. When you come to God, you experience the witness of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He cries out, Abba, Father. It's the heart cry of the soul recognizing its sonship to the Father. There is a relationship there that was not there before. Do you know the witness of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Again, what does he say there? Galatians chapter 3. I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 4. In verse 6, he says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, that whole chapter, the whole chapter is dealing with assurance. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Begins the chapter with that. Ends with nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The whole chapter deals with the assurance of our salvation. But look at Romans 8, beginning at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Note the next verse. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That corresponds exactly with what Paul has been saying in Galatians chapter 3. When you were under the law, you were in bondage, in fear of judgment. What does the law do? It declares every man guilty. We are all confined by the law as transgressors of God's command, God's commandments. We are transgressors, and the law doesn't let anyone out. You can't get out through good works. In fact, the law only points to one solution. The law was our schoolmaster to what? Bring us to Christ. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. But after Christ has come, we are released from the prison that the law confines us to. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 8 
And verse 15, when you have come to Christ, you are a son of God. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, 6, it is the spirit who cries, Abba, Father. In Romans 8, in verse 15, it's we who cry, Abba, Father. So his, who is it? Is it we or the spirit? It's both. It's both. We've received the spirit of adoption. And because of this, we can cry, Abba, Father, with confidence. He is our Father. It goes on here in verse 16 of Romans 8, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Again, this is assurance. This is His convincing. If the Father hasn't drawn you, you can't come to Christ. But when the Father draws a man, He does come to Christ. And He receives the life of Christ. And the Son, the Father, they take up and make their, up their abode in Him. The Holy Spirit indwells him. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He bears witness with our spirit. He convinces us of our sonship, whereby we crawl out to God. And what do we call him? Oh, great prophet. No. You ever notice how the world, the world unbelievers call out to God? How do they call out to God? My God. Do you ever hear an unbeliever cry and say, Oh, Father? No. They don't have that relationship. But as believers, we cry out to God as our Father. And we do that because of the witness of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit prompts this within us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the what? The children of God. We are His sons. Listen, do you, have that, do you have that assurance? Do you have a powerful, personal persuasion of your sonship? When, when the Scripture speaks of this, does your heart just say yes and agree? Or is it just foreign? Maybe it sounds good, but there's no connection there. You need to be sure, as Peter says, you need to make sure your calling and election. You need to be convinced. You need to know that you're a child of God. And folks, it's not complex. But unless the Father draws you, you will not be saved. But when He does, when He draws you, ah, he finishes the job. Okay. All whom the Father giveth me will come to me, Jesus said. They do. Okay. All the what, what is a here's an illustration? You know, when you have a little baby, especially some of you think back many, many moons ago, many years ago, 
your first child, and they start talking, they start making sounds, and, and what does mama try to teach the baby? Say, dad, dad. What's she doing? She's trying to teach, teach that, that. There's your daddy. There, that's, 